I'm Kate McKinney, the PR and Communications Manager here at San Francisco Ballet, and this is an episode of To The Point. In fact, the final episode of the 2021 digital season. Today we're going to talk about one of the most famous ballets in the ballet repertoire, Swan Lake, which is on screen and through June 9. And internationally, this is probably the most famous ballet in the world, and here in the United States, it's second only to Nutcracker. Even if people have never seen a ballet, they probably know of Swan Lake and can picture a ballerina in a white tutu undulating her arms like wings. But how did Swan Lake come to be? And if you haven't seen it before, what can you expect and what can you look for? Well, you've come to the right place. We'll give you a quick overview of the history of Swan Lake and then dive into the story and point out a few things to look for. If you know something about the history of Swan Lake, you're probably expecting me to start off by talking about Marius Petipa and Lev Ivanov, the two choreographers most closely associated with the ballet, and two of the most famous in all of ballet history. But I'm not. Instead, the story of Swan Lake's creation actually begins with a little-known choreographer named Julius Reisinger in Moscow in 1877. In the late 1800s, ballets were made, like now, in a very collaborative way. But whereas today, most ballets start with music, as George Balanchine said, you need to, quote, see the music and hear the dance. In the 19th century, most ballets began with a story or a libretto. That libretto was sometimes written by a writer or theater producer, and sometimes by the choreographer. From there, the choreographer would figure out the details of what they wanted and needed. Eight bars for an entrance, six bars of scared, nervous music, 16 bars for a finale and then send that information over to the composer who would begin work. And traditionally, that composer was what was called a ballet specialist, someone like Ludwig Minkus, employed by the theater and happy to provide music crafted specifically to the choreographer's requests in terms of length, mood, tempi, and meter. The composer, like the dancers, was very much at the mercy of the choreographer. He was a tool to be used. Interestingly, this relationship applied not only to new works, but revived works as well, something that comes into play in Swan Lake's story. When 19th century choreographers revived works, let's say they hadn't staged Don Quixote in a few years and a new ballerina was playing their leading role, then they might rearrange the score or add in new dances with new music and ask whichever ballet specialist was working at the theater at that point to compose something new to insert in. Neither choreography nor music were considered sacred. Rather, the ability of the choreography to show off the dancers at their best and to please the public was valued above all else. But Swan Lake was different. It was famed composer Peter Ilyich Tchaikovsky's first ballet, and he had little patience for being treated like a ballet specialist. At this point, he was already known for his symphonies and operas, and common understanding would have been that writing for ballet would have been beneath him. But he was interested and engaged. He was just going to do it his own way. That said, it's hard to know exactly what the score was like when it was first composed. By 1895, when Petipa and Ivanov re-choreographed the ballet, don't worry, we'll get there, it had already been re-choreographed twice before, and Tchaikovsky was only involved in that first 1877 production. We do know, however, that Tchaikovsky may have had a small hand in creating the libretto. The libretto was written by Vladimir Begachev, who was at the time the artistic manager of the Bolshoi Theater, and published anonymously on October 19, 1876 in Teatralnaya Gazeta in Moscow. 
Moscow theater legend claims that Tchaikovsky and Begachev, who knew each other through the art societies of Moscow, took a trip down the Rhine, visiting Berlin and Paris, and in viewing the castles along the river, conceived of the story together. Although this part of the story is in all likelihood untrue, the idea that Tchaikovsky was involved in the composition of the libretto as well as the score is highly plausible, especially given that in 1869 and in 1873 he had composed other works, short operas and a small ballet for his family, on the theme of a man falling in love with a non-mortal woman and it all ending terribly. One of these was even called The Lake of Swans. Obviously, like, totally different from Swan Lake. We also know that the music was much more complex than standard balletic fare at that time. In fact, when Julius Reisinger went to choreograph it, he demanded several changes, including the elimination of some sections of the score and the additions of some others. Choreographically, we have almost no idea what the choreography for Reisinger's ballet looked like. None of it was maintained in later productions. What we do know is that in the first act, there was a pas de deux for Prince Siegfried and a peasant. That music is now used in the third act, Black Swan Pas de Deux. We also know that the third act relied much more so on special effects than on dancing. At the moment when Siegfried is deceived by Odile, the stage plunged into darkness, and when the lights came back up, Rothbart was a demon dressed in red. There was also a special effect that created a giant flood at the end of the fourth act. But I digress. From the beginning, Tchaikovsky was bristling against being treated like a ballet specialist. In one of my favorite backstage drama stories, it was in the fifth performance of Swan Lake in 1877. Ballerina Anna Sobeschanskaya was supposed to make her debut in the starring role of Odette, but apparently she found the music too difficult and she hated Reisinger's choreography, so she took a small business trip to St. Petersburg to ask Petipa to create a new variation for her to new music by Minkus. Her plan was to just insert this into the ballet instead of Tchaikovsky's original music, like no one would notice, right? <laughs> well, Tchaikovsky definitely noticed and was definitely displeased. To fix it, he offered to write a new pas de deux for the dancer. Sobeschanskaya, however, had no intention of changing her dance, so he wrote new music that agreed, quote, bar for bar, note for note, with a Minkus piece. She liked this music so much that she even asked Tchaikovsky to write her another variation. This story perhaps points to the inevitable. Swan Lake, at its debut performance, was critically panned. People hated the choreography, mostly, and the music was deemed strange and complicated for a ballet. But despite the early bad reviews, in 1895, choreographers Marius Petipa and Lev Ivanov decided together that they wanted to reprise Tchaikovsky's Swan Lake for the Mariinsky Ballet in St. Petersburg, following on the success of two other Tchaikovsky ballets, Sleeping Beauty and Nutcracker. This would be the version that we know today and that forms the basis for all 20th and 21st century adaptations. Perhaps nervous about critical reception, Petipa and Ivanov started with just the second act and had Pierina Legnani, the most celebrated ballerina of the time, perform the leading role. When that went well, they moved forward with the whole thing. One problem, though. Tchaikovsky had died in 1893, so if they were going to do this ballet, which had never been done at the Mariinsky in St. Petersburg, only at the Bolshoi in Moscow, they were going to have to adapt the music themselves. Well, they ended up asking Modest Tchaikovsky, Peter's brother, and Ricardo Drigo, the ballet specialist at the Mariinsky, to make substantial changes to the score and libretto. 
Drigo ended up removing about a quarter of the score and rearranged several numbers. He also added piano pieces from Tchaikovsky's Opus 72 into the second and third acts. These changes were necessary in part because Petipa and Ivanov were making some substantial changes in the libretto. In the original, for example, the heroine, Odette, was being persecuted by her evil stepmother, and her grandfather gave her a magic crown for protection. Her swan shape was to allow her to travel and play with her friends without her stepmother's interference. In the Petipa version, however, an evil magician condemned her to swan shape until she could find her true love. And in that first version, distraught that he could not be with her, the hero, Siegfried, rips the crown off her head and she dies in his arms, murdered by his hand, before he lets the waves wash over him and drown, drowns himself. But Petipa apparently found this ending distasteful and substituted a joint suicide to free Odette from eternal swanhood, the destruction of the magician through the power of true love, and an apotheosis in which the lovers travel to heaven together. It is this version that is most often cited as the canonical Swan Lake. In it, Petipa and Ivanov traded off acts. Petipa did acts 1 and 3, and Ivanov did acts 2 and 4, meaning the iconic lakeside scenes with all the swans were made by Ivanov, but the virtuosic black swan pas de deux was made by Petipa. One of the really distinctive things about the choreography for Swan Lake is how much of an impact the original dancers had on the dance text, particularly Pierina Lignani, the original Odette and Odile, and Pavel Gert, who was the original Prince Siegfried. Lignani, known for her technical prowess, was the first woman to do 32 fouetté turns in point shoes, so that part of the choreography, which appears in the third act, can be directly traced back to her. And as for Gert, his influence was really in the opposite direction. By 1895, Gert, although the premier dancer at the Mariansky, was getting older and was unable to lift Lignani by himself, so Petipa and Ivanov created the role of Benno, Siegfried's best friend. When Odette was supposed to dance with Siegfried, Benno would tag along to do all the probably not-so-heavy lifting, and so the pas de deux was actually a pas de trois, a dance for three people. When Lignani and Gert retired from these roles in 1901, that section of the ballet was reworked as a duet. From this point on, Swan Lake was pretty much a hit and became heavily associated with ballet and with Russian ballet in particular. Companies around the world began to perform this ballet once touring companies like the Ballet Russe began to perform it far and wide. And here in the United States, the first full-length production happened right here in San Francisco, with Willem Christensen's Swan Lake in 1940. It's now one of the most widely seen ballets in the world. One thing to note is that you will not see the dying swan variation in Swan Lake. Audiences sometimes ask about this. That famous dying swan solo actually didn't come from Swan Lake but it's a standalone piece of choreography by Mikhail Fokin to music by Camille Saint-Saëns. But what will you see? Well, let's dive into the story and also point out some highlights of the production. In Helgi Thomason's 2009 production of Swan Lake, the ballet opens with a young princess named Odette taking a walk alone by the lake. Now, if this were a horror movie, you'd know this isn't going to end well, and indeed it doesn't. Evil sorcerer von Rothbart appears and, before Odette can escape, transforms her into a swan. This opening is notable as many productions of Swan Lake jump right into Act 1, but this production starts here, with just our heroine and our villain. This moment isn't about dancing, but rather about introducing the story of Odette. We meet her as a woman instead of as a swan, and we meet her in the middle of her story instead of being told about it via mime later on. 
This change makes the story truly about her and her experience, rather than fundamentally about Siegfried. So that brings us to Act 1 and Prince Siegfried, our hero. He's turning 21, and as might be expected, his friends are throwing him a party. That is, until his mom shows up. And even worse, she comes bearing bad news. It's time to get married. The queen lets Siegfried know that she'll be hosting a ball the next day and has invited a variety of princesses to attend. He can pick the one he likes best. Oh, and she gives him a crossbow. Thanks, Mom. Though pleased about the new weapon, Siegfried's not so pleased about the order to get married. What happened to love, to romance, to actually doing something that he wants with his own life? He clearly didn't read the rules that come with fairy tale princedom. But just as he's really getting upset, he notices a flock of swans and thinks that a hunting trip with his best friend Benno might be just what's in order. This act is where we first meet Siegfried and start to understand his motivations. Watch how he interacts with his friends, and also for his solo, which is full of big arabesques and long-reaching movements that suggest his yearning for a different life. Also, keep an eye out for the pas de trois, a short piece danced by two women and a man. Full of tricky steps and opportunities for each dancer to shine, this dance offers a chance for a few principal dancers to show their stuff, or for even a few up-and-comers to make a big impression. The opening of Act 2 shows us that the swan Siegfried spotted is actually Odette, who transforms back into a woman right as he's about to shoot. Also, but side note, who hunts swans? Well, anyway, Siegfried is fascinated by this beautiful woman. She tells him her whole sad story, evil sorcerer, swan during the day, woman at night. But she also tells him that there's a way out. If a man promises his love and remains faithful, the curse will be broken and Odette and all her friends will be free. You probably see where this is going. Siegfried jumps on the opportunity and declares his love. At daybreak, Odette returns to her swan form and Siegfried heads off to his mom's party with a secret of his own. The second act is maybe the most famous scene in all of ballet. Odette and her dozens of swans, all dressed in white tutus, dance together, moving and breathing as one. Their port de bras or movements of the arms, are particularly famous. There is a ripple through the full length of the arm, beginning at the shoulder blade and extending all the way to the fingertips. Odette should really give a sense of being both a woman and a swan in this act, or at least a woman used to spending most of her time as a swan. Also, keep an eye out for one special moment for the four shortest girls in the corps de ballet. Known as the signet variation, these four girls will dance together holding crisscrossed hands and moving their feet and heads in perfect sync. It's much harder than it looks. Act 3 brings us back to the castle into that aforementioned ball, which doesn't go well for Siegfried, to put it mildly. First, he has to meet and dance with five prospective brides, but he's still thinking about Odette and tells his mother he can't marry any of these women. And then things get worse when two new guests arrive, von Rothbart and his daughter Odile, transformed to resemble Odette. Siegfried is drawn to her and they dance together. He doesn't even notice Odette when she waves at him through the window. At the end of their dance, he declares his love for Odile, and with his mother's approval and von Rothbart's encouragement, he swears his formal oath, thinking, of course, that she's really Odette. You could say he's a little dim, perhaps, but honestly, these days, the two roles of Odette and Odile are almost always played by the same dancer, so no wonder he's confused. 
Odile and Von Rothbart take this opportunity to reveal their true identities, but it's too late. Siegfried sees Odette through the window, realizes what he's done, and chases after her. The main thing to look for in this act is the Black Swan Pas de Deux, or duet for Siegfried and Odile. This piece of choreography is one of the most famous in the repertory, renowned for both its technical difficulty and its dramatic cohesion. In the plot, this moment is when Siegfried falls for Odile, believing her to be Odette. This idea is conveyed in two ways. First, her movements imitate Odette's from the prior act, including wing-like arm movements. And second, and as I said in Siegfried's defense, Odette and Odile are danced by the same dancer. But what you're looking for isn't how similar the dancing is, but rather how different. Where Odette was soft, Odile is sharp. Where Odette was innocent, Odile is seductive. This role is the ultimate test of a ballerina because she has to be able to do both kinds of dancing with equal skill. Oh, and keep an eye out for the final section of the pas de deux as well, the coda. The turns Odile does, called fouettes, are extremely hard and take up 32 counts of music. As we mentioned earlier, Pierina Lignani was the first woman ev even capable of performing this feat, and now everyone who dances the part has to do the same. And to be honest, it hasn't gotten easier in 126 years. The final act, which in our production happens immediately after Act 3 without an intermission, shows the culmination of the tragedy. Siegfried's betrayal has solidified the curse, and Odette will stay a swan forever. He begs her forgiveness and she grants it, but there's nothing to be done. She decides she can't live this way any longer and throws herself off a cliff. Siegfried follows. The end, right? Well, not quite. This act of pure love breaks the spell and kills von Rothbart. Love is apparently more effective than the crossbow in the first act. With the spell broken, Odette and Siegfried's spirits are reunited in the afterlife. Not quite a happy ending, but a glimmer of hope among the tragedy. This final act is all about the drama. Watch for the ways that Siegfried, Odette, and von Rothbart interact with each other. This is the climax of the ballet and the moment when the steps and technique fade into the background, and the storytelling, passion, and emotion come to the fore. And that's all for today, folks, and in fact, for the rest of the season. Thanks for tuning into season four of To The Point and meet me right back here in the fall and winter for an in-person Nutcracker in the beginning of the 2022 repertory season, in person marking Helgi Thomason's final year as artistic director and principal choreographer of San Francisco Ballet. In the meantime, if you haven't checked out our other podcasts, including recordings of our popular Meet the Artist interviews and points of view lectures, you should go do that. You can find them on our website or in any podcasting app, including Apple Podcasts and the Google Play Store. Hit subscribe and you'll get our episodes downloaded as soon as they're posted. In addition, please do leave us a rating and a review in the Apple Store and reach out on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at SF Ballet. We'd love to hear from you and your ratings and reviews help us reach new and bigger audiences. Thanks for listening and see you soon.